Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Now, the country is falling apart. Not my words. That's the words of a Conservative MP, anonymous, admittedly. Uh, there was a report in the Daily Express, a Conservative-supported newspaper, um, which reported that Tory MPs are submitting... <laughs> Just getting a bit nostalgic because this has happened so many times over the last few years. Uh, they're submitting uh, uh, letters of no confidence in the Prime Minister. One of them says, it just feels like we have completely lost control. The country is falling apart. Nobody really believes the Prime Minister can win the election anymore. The country is falling apart. Quite literally is the answer there. Um, as people have seen with the crisis over crumbling schools, quite literally the uh, possibility of schools collapsing on the heads of children and killing them. That's where we're currently at. Um, as well as hospitals and other buildings. So that's one aspect we're going to be talking about, the physical infrastructure of the country. Um, and we've got a brilliant expert later on to talk to us about that. But there's also, I suppose, the issue of the social infrastructure of this country, the welfare state, uh, which was established in the form that we know it after World War II, the huge sacrifice of that cataclysmic war meant people felt that we couldn't return to the hungry 30s. And that was the basis of the welfare state, um, which was established. And that since 2010, has as a principle and as an actual practical existing structure, has faced repeated assaults. Um, so we're going to talk about that with a brilliant expert. Before we do, if you're watching live, please press like um, and, or, and subscribe. Actually, you don't need to be watching it live. Not, most of you aren't watching this live. But if you, whatever you're doing, whatever time it is, just press hit, hit like and subscribe if you so wish. Very nice of you. Um, you can uh, keep the show on the road in terms of the video channel on patreon.com forward slash own jazz84. Uh, also, you super chats. I will go through the super chats uh, and submit questions, but I also thank everyone as well at the end. You can also, to those of you listening to us on the podcast, hi. That's that's great to, great to have you. Right, before we I bring in Tom, let me, uh, sorry, our first guest, Tom Pollard, who's head of social policy at the New Economics Foundation and knows this inside out. Let's just hear about the latest policy announced on the welfare state, which is to do with sickness benefits, those who are who are ill, particularly with mental health issues. Let's just hear a report on this. There have been uh, Conservative MPs who've been pushing for this to happen uh, for quite some time, but uh, it turns out that actually these changes won't come into effect, uh, if even indeed they do, because it's all a consultation at the moment until at least 2025, which is after the general election. Now, uh, this is all about making changes to the test uh, that determines uh, to what extent somebody's uh, disability or long-term illness affects their ability to work. And what the Work and Pension Secretary, Mel Stride, says is that that test hasn't been looked at for many years. And in the meantime, the world of work has changed dramatically since the COVID pandemic. And, and that means, he says... Let's bring in now Tom Pollard, who is the head of social policy at the New Economics Foundation. So, hey, Tom, firstly, great to have Hi. you. Maybe you will. So, yeah, the way the government is talking about this is that people with disabilities are going to be given more support, that the world of work has changed. So now more people working um, at home, that's become more possible. So before you might have had people on part of their conditions, very difficult to leave the house. That's now changed. Um, so this is just them being more cuddly and warm and nice and just really just want to help people who are really, really struggling. And I'm just wondering, what's your what's your take on on how it's been spun versus maybe the realities you would see? It? Yeah, so I think there's a lot in that. I think the reality is that no one's going to be opposed to people with disabilities and health conditions being given better support if that's available. And if there's changes to the world of work that make it, you know, more flexible and amenable to people with disabilities and health conditions working, that's also great. What they're talking about here, essentially, is reclassifying 
people's benefits so that first of all they receive much less per month and secondly so that they're essentially mandated um you know they're subject to conditionality and told they have to do certain activities and although they're saying they wouldn't sanction people technically those people could be sanctioned and that's the fear is that more and more people become kind of subject to quite a punitive system and the reality is if they wanted to offer this support to people they can offer it to people now you know people can be offered support on a voluntary basis the reason a lot of people don't take that support up is because fundamentally they don't trust the dwp and they don't trust the job center and they've been through a long history of having a fraught and you know difficult relationship with the dwp and so they shy away from it understandably and what needs to happen is that they need to start offering genuine support that people feel able to trust and engage with, not resorting back to the stick of lower benefits and conditionality. So we talk about conditionality. I mean, the government, the way they would spin that is, well, look, we're providing something. The pro pro is you have to give something back and that without conditionality, people won't be encouraged to go to work if they can go to work. What's the problem with applying to people with the sorts of illnesses or conditions affected by these changes what what's the main issue why doesn't conditionality work why is it counterproductive yeah so lots of people in this group have mental health problems uh, alongside many people who also have physical health conditions and what's been shown time and time again is that applying pressure to that group and saying if you don't do this you might lose your benefit what it tends to really achieve is making people feel anxious and stressed um, and lots of people are already feeling that way because they're trying to get by on a low income. And what the New Economics Foundation has been saying is that actually give people give people a secure foundation. Most people, if they can, want to work. And if the right support is there and if the right jobs are there, people do want to work. But that support needs to be genuinely supportive. And as soon as you start applying pressure, what happens is that people kind of withdraw into their shell a little bit, understandably, because their fear is, well, I'm going to lose my benefits or I'm going to be pushed into a job that doesn't feel appropriate for me. I was talking about this um, on TV earlier, and this uh, caller rang in. This is, this is an extreme example. I, I, I te- obviously concede, as, as you'll see. But it was a woman from Manchester who rang in and said that her husband had a, a range of different mental health problems, went in and was found to be fit for work and died of a heart attack the next day. And she was adamant that the stress of what he'd gone through had contributed to that. Now, obviously, we're not saying that the stress of what the government are intending to do is going to cause mass death. You know, that would be hyperbolic and and extreme. But that is an extreme case of what can happen, I suppose, is that the argument that you have people under a lot of mental health uh, strain that if you if you add anxiety and stress at, at, at best it's counterproductive it, it doesn't make them engage with the state with job centers and so on yeah exactly that i mean what the evidence shows is that where you know there are support schemes that help people with even quite severe mental health problems severe disabilities into work but when they do that it's all about voluntary support with a really you know, expert um, work coach or um, agency who can help that person figure out what it is they might be able to do, negotiate with an employer. It's it's a really proactive, involved process, which isn't anything like what the job centre does. And unfortunately, the sort of cases you cite there aren't as rare as they should be. You know, many people have died either from physical health conditions or sadly from suicide. As a result, you know, and that's been signaled in like coroner's reports that there's a direct line between people's negative experiences of the DWP and all the stress around assessments and often being told they're fit for work when they don't feel they are and people attempting or very sadly ending their lives. And all, what all of this points to is that we've tried time and time again to have this kind of adversarial approach where, you know, the state says you're fine and you're not, and you're not as ill as you, as you say you are and actually works good for you. And that stuff's been weaponized quite a lot. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, works good for your mental health. But a lot of the sort of jobs people get pushed from the job centre into aren't necessarily good for your mental health. Poor work's been shown to be very bad for your mental health. And so all the talk about, well, people can work at home now, work's a lot more flexible. Great where that's true. But the sort of jobs people are going from the job centre into are often at the low end of the labour market. They're not necessarily jobs where those kind of flexibilities are available. So, again, all of this just feels so disingenuous. I mean, just in terms of 
mean, this is morbid, I know, but in terms of deaths in general, um, it's notable that when, under the George Osborne regime, when we saw obviously an assault on a whole range of different benefits, between December 2011 and February 2014, 2,380 people died after their claim for employment and support allowance ended because a work capability assessment found they were fit for work. And I think that, I suppose, that just shows the danger when you have an approach which is based on actually cutting back on a budget rather than prioritizing people's needs. Because that is that part of the problem. They're spinning this is we're trying to help uh, people who might need a bit of a nudge or support to get into work when actually that's secondary, if anything, to cutting a budget. Yeah, I mean, it seems likely that a key part of the motivation for this is a big fear around the growing number of people who are out of work because of disability or health problems and that that is a concern you know we're talking about millions of people and a big spike on the back of the pandemic um but it's not something you can solve with a stick you know a lot of this is about people struggling to access health support through the nhs people kind of suffering from a general lack of kind of good public service and community infrastructure around them, that's what leads to people becoming unwell or contributes to people remaining unwell. And you can't just kind of push people back into work and say, well, work can make it all better again. You know, work can play a key part. And for lots of people, it is important for their mental health. But it's about understanding the situation that people are in and around. And unfortunately, the DWP has kind of one key lever at its disposal and it pulls it again and again and again, expecting to get a different outcome. And for this group, the outcome it tends to lead to is not many people moving back into work, but lots of people experiencing a lot of stress and distress and anxiety. This point about working from home, because there was a, I mean, even before the pandemic, there was a trend towards more working at home. The pandemic put a rocket under that. So much so we've had a big more, more panic about it in various newspapers and um, in, in politics as well. Um, but how realistic is that? Because a lot, you know, again, when I was talking about this earlier, my opponent was saying, well, look, now people can work at home. This, the world of work is completely different. But is, it, is there a mismatch that often the sorts of jobs available to those who the government would wish to be in work don't necessarily match up with being able to work at home? Yeah, we know that people who move back into work by the job centre are tending to go into relatively insecure low paid what you think of as kind of poor quality work um some people will find their way into better jobs where those sort of options might be available but for a lot of people that's just not the lived reality and you know on the one hand the government's kind of pushing back against some of this and saying people should get back to the office and and we have seen a kind of you know retrenchment back towards a bit more of a kind of traditional way of working but on the other hand they're saying well because people can work from home therefore it's kind of okay to say someone's fit for work when previously we thought they weren't fit for work and you know, for a lot of these people, it's also about, you know, there's one side of this, which is about the kind of working from home and flexibility. The other side is they're saying that many people are currently getting into this category of benefit because there's a, an assessment made that there's a risk around these people because of a history of um, suicidal thoughts or self-harm. And, and that the suggestion is that's being kind of overused for people to access this category of benefit. So they're also consulting on kind of cutting back on that mechanism, which, to be frank, is the one thing that's allowed lots of people with mental health problems who would otherwise slip through the gaps of this assessment to get the support that they need. So a lot of this just feels very risky and potentially very harmful um, without the evidence that it's actually going to lead to benefits for, for, you know, in terms of people getting back into work for many people. So just quickly, because I know, I know you're on a school run, you've just become Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Congratulations. What are the kind of three big things that you would do as an alternative? What would be your complete different approach? So I think the first thing I do is, you know, this is about communication in part. It's about saying to people, look, we recognise the stress and distress that you've been put through by a lot of these reforms. And we're going to do things fundamentally differently. There needs to be a really clear break from the past. And some of that might be about actually delivering the support through other means, not through the job centre, which people don't trust, but through, you know, health settings or local authorities or the third sector where people might feel more comfortable engaging. I'd recentre the whole system around this idea of engagement. The measure should be, actually, can we get someone to turn up voluntarily and engage with support? And we should be putting the onus of responsibility on services to do that. There aren't many public services that have this kind of lever at their disposal of saying, well, if you don't turn up for your GP appointment, I'm going to, I'm going to cut your income. It's, it's not the way things are done. It's all about, you know, how do you engage people in a meaningful way? 
So I try and take away that option in as many cases as possible. And then the final thing would be about providing as much kind of security to people as possible. The kind of traditional wisdom is, well, you have to give people a very small amount of money to get by and that that will motivate them to get back into work. But where motivation isn't the key barrier, giving people enough to get by means they're not spending every day trying to make ends meet desperately and they're not just focused on the day-to-day challenge of getting by and they can open up a little bit and think a bit further into the future and engage in some of these you know thoughts and options so for me it'd be about saying you know we're going to give you that security and we're going to offer that support but it's not about threat it's about a genuine trusting open offer Brilliant stuff, Tom. Honestly, really, really appreciate it and how busy you are. And the New Economics Foundation, for those who aren't aware of the work they do, real treasure trove across the board, from this to a whole range of things, which a lot of the columns I write have often drawn on the New Economics Foundation and their, their brilliant research. So thank you so, so much, Tom. Really, really appreciate it on a busy day and hope you get some sun. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Cheers. Thank take care. You. Brilliant stuff there from Tom. Really, really appreciate it. Um, we have uh, coming up... Um, let me get this right, because what we are talking about as well, of course, is the fact that our schools are just falling, literally falling apart, um, which is absolutely brilliant. So we've got Phoebe Clay, who's from Unchecked UK, which uh, represents dozens of organisations fighting for social environmental um, uh, uh, rules and regulations. But we'll just talk about what the hell happens with schools, with hospitals, how serious it is, how worried we should be, how we got here, how it was ignored for so long. I've got loads of questions about this. So um, do you think of some questions? Because there's a lot to get through there about the literal collapse of our country all around us. Before we do, I, uh, because we're going to wait, I think for about 10 minutes, she's probably going to join us about 10 minutes or so. Um, I'm a masochist. I'm a masochist. I love talking about things which make me feel miserable. Um, otherwise known as the British Labour Party. Um, and the reason I talk about this is uh, I'm going to talk about this is because the, I haven't done a video about it, partly just because it makes me so depressed. Uh, I did a column about the Labour reshuffle, uh, which was about uh, who's up and who is down, I suppose. But um, I've always tried to resist as a political writer, reducing politics to a soap opera, which is often what happens. Um, what I'm interested in is what it means for us, what it means for society, what it means for you. And um, that's the whole point about politics. And um, it's not an episode of EastEnders, as it's often shown. Um, but what I looked at is the politics of that particular reshuffle. And what we saw in it was... Um, the rise, I suppose, or the complete return of ardent, committed, ideological Blairites. Um, and what this is, is it's a victory for the Liz Kendall leadership campaign of 2015. Uh, people might remember in 2015, Liz Kendall stood as the Blairite contender. There's a brilliant piece from the Times in May 2015, when they claimed that she could end up winning one million votes um, because uh, people would be flocking into the se- essentially semi-open primary of the Labour contest because they, they would be so enthused by Liz Kendall that they would go and vote for her. Anyway, she got 4.5%. Um, but her campaign manager was a guy called Morgan McSweeney. And Morgan McSweeney went on to run the leadership campaign of Keir Starmer. But the Liz Kendall leadership campaign was a salutary lesson for him because they got absolutely thumped. And they got, why did they get thumped? Because they got honest about what they thought. They said, we're going to cut benefits that kind of thing. They said they support austerity light. They went down that path. It did not go down well. It went down like um, a big bag of sick. Um, so then they decided we'll play the long game. We'll stand a candidate who um, has credentials. They were in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. Um, and we'll pretend to be left wing in the leadership contest, which they did. They promised nationalization, increased taxes on the rich, the abolition of tuition fees, standing by trade unions, reversing privatisation of the National Health Service, being pro-migrant, pro-refugee, scrapping universal credit. I mean, if you think about it, it's actually quite ludicrous. Party unity, a broad church, 2017 manifesto is a foundational document. Don't trash the last four and a half years. That's what Keir Starmer said. Um, And then uh, when he became leader, the strategy was to pivot to the right. And what that meant was abandoning those policies. It meant kicking the left from the front benches. Um, it meant rigging the selections within the party in terms of MPs um, 
to uh, make sure that you just got right wing, ardent Blairite, almost cartoonish Blairite uh, automatons um, selected. Um, and then to marginalize the soft left, who have been systematically marginalized. So Ed Miliband, they're always trying to get rid of him. They basically, back in 2021, they got rid of the business department from him and left him just with the climate side of it. Uh, they scaled back the 28 billion pounds a year transition green transition fund, which is basically his baby. Um, and then they also uh, they've constantly gone for Angela Rayner. Um, they've constantly tried to demote her. They in the recent reshuffle, she lost various a- aspects, but she won the leveling up department. Um, the issue is the workers' rights agenda, which is the last transformative set of policies Labour still has, is under her purview but it's no longer attached to a government department and the dangers that we watered down in government, particularly when civil servants and big business kick off over it. That's the suspicion. Uh, Lisa Nandy, I mean, she's often portrayed as soft left. She portrayed herself as a soft left critic of Ed Miliband, pivoted to the right in the last leadership contest where she started complaining about Labour wanting to nationalise everything, which wasn't true, uh, came third, um, was totally loyal to Keir Starmer, routinely briefed against and now spectacularly demoted. Um she went from shadow foreign secretary to shadow leveling up secretary, and now she's shadow international development secretary, uh, which no longer is a department. And it was briefed to journalists um, that Keir Starmer said he didn't even want her. <laughs> um, so that that bodes well for him. Um, so in terms of people promoted, Pat McFadden, who is Blair's former political secretary, is now the Labour Party's campaign coordinator. Uh, Darren Jones, who once hailed Blair as his political hero, is now shadow chief secretary to the Treasury. Peter Kyle, one of the most ardent Blair out of the Labour benches, now holds the uh, science uh, briefing. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, science shadow department. Um, Rosanna Allen Khan, someone else. Uh, she was a shadow min- cabinet minister for mental health. Um, but she had made it clear she didn't support increased private sector involvement at the NHS, which went against Labour's policy and was streeting the shadow health secretary's policy. Uh, she resigned as shadow cabinet minister for mental health, pointedly saying that, Keir Starmer, you made clear that you do not see a space for mental health portfolio in a Labour cabinet. Brilliant. Um, yeah, it's not looking good. Uh, so basically, what you've also said, it's not just the rise of the Blairites, it's uh, the old Brownites as well. I mean, the constant briefing against Yvette Cooper, his shadow home secretary, there was a video they put out of a Keir Starmer's team, you know, waltzing, like, you know, they were somehow these cool guys. Um, through Westminster, and it didn't include Yvette Cooper, um, who's Shadow Home Secretary. They don't, they briefed against it. They think she's too left wing. The point I was going to make, though, is a very astute figure put this to me, which was the thing about New Labour is actually a coalition between Tony Blair and his cabal and Gordon Brown and, and his uh, grouping, his faction. And, you know, they both co founded New Labour, but Gordon Brown's, the figures, protected by his patronage tended to be more to the left of the Blairites. So you had, you know, a whole range of people from like Frank Dobson to Robin Cook, Harriet Harman, um, who were more aligned in that particular direction. And that's where you got a lot of the progressive stuff of the, of the Labour, of that new Labour period. There was a memo in the nineties before Labour came to power where there was kind of a written memo with, um, where Labour would agree in government to Gordon Brown's programme of investment after the first two years when they stuck to Tory spending limits. The issue is with Blair, oh, sorry, Blair, well, indeed, Starmer cosplaying as Blair is he's more, um, he's not actually doing what Blairism did because you had that coalition. It's just Blairites, <laughs> no soft left, no brownites, just ardent Blairites on the ascendancy and um, with no alternative power base. And um, they'll inherit a country which, unlike 997, is a real total mess, that they don't have the transformative policies. They're not committed to raising the revenue you need to fix the problems. They're not going to increase income tax on the rich, as Keir Starmer promised in the leadership campaign. They're not going to increase corporation tax. They're not going to equalize capital gains tax at the moment. Capital gains tax on stocks and, um, uh, you know, just wealth, which you just sit on. Um, at the moment, that's taxed a lot less than work. They're not going to equalise that. Um, so they have no commitments to increase spending um, by raising revenue. So how are they going to deal with all the problems of the country? So they'll have little political capital. They're winning at the moment because the Tories um, are in a mess. 
So I think it's just quite interesting, the politics of the Labour, the Labour reshuffle, uh, because what we're talking about is the Blairite, um, the Blairite ascendancy, where, and the other point I would make, I'm just going to flag this up, is there was an article in the Times the last week which suggested that um, various MPs could have the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party refuse to allow them to stand as candidates on the eve of the next election. And they actually mentioned, um, for example, Liam Byrne, who's, who's um, accused of bullying his staff, uh, and Neil Coyle, uh, who racially abused the journalist, um, I was accused of sexual harassment, but I had the whip reinstated. Um, and they talked about removing the whip and uh, not allowing them to stand as candidates. A lot of you might think, well, good. I think the problem is, I think what that article was doing was laying the foundations for the Labour Party NEC to do that to a lot. They said up to a dozen. I think well, they're going to use that power to stop, to at the last minute, um, block left-wing MPs from standing as candidates. That's what I think is going to happen. Uh, they briefed various Labour, uh, Starmer people have briefed um... This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, a brief previously that Labour will lose the election unless we get rid of them. Uh, those left-wing MPs, because their fear is you end up either with a minority Labour government or government with a small majority, and that could give the left more power. And they want to get rid of that. They also want factional revenge. They also were like, well, New Labour thought the left was defeated and ignored them, and then look what happened. So there's a few reasons. Now, in terms of how that would play in the media, well, a lot of you might think, well, that's, you, know, you can't just purge all your MPs. Well, you see, I think what happens if they've collected a dossier on these MPs for a start? of, you know, things they tweeted or put on Facebook 10 years ago. And um, what if, um, well, not you don't what if it. I mean, do you remember Boris Johnson kicked out 21 MPs? So what, what, what did it do to him? And I think, you know, the problem is the media hate the left, got contempt for the left. And they, you know, under Corbyn, when you had various councillors in Hornsey and Wood Green getting deselected, that was a national story for weeks. I went on TV about five times talking about that. And it was portrayed as Stalinist authoritarianism. But I'd, that won't happen to Keir Starmer. The media will go, wow, ruthless, tough, strong. Um, I think they'll cheer it on. Um, so I really want to flag this up. They'll do it at the last minute because then that'll stop the MPs that they purge forming an independent block. It will stop them um, raising money and organizing a campaign to keep their seats. Yeah, it's not. It's not the cheeriest news I've ever delivered, but that is what I think is going to happen. And, you know, this is the most authoritarian leadership in the history of the Labour Party. I mean, at the moment, you'll notice a lot of left-wing MPs are being pretty stum, and they're, they're being stum because they fear if they say anything, they'll get purged. And they, they should fear that because a lot of people around Keir Starmer want to purge them. And I think what will happen is in government, I don't know, I mean, Angela Rayner you know, in terms of that workers' rights agenda, I think is going to be diluted. They can't get rid of her because she's got her own elected mandate as deputy of the Labour Party. They'd like to. They think she conspired to lead a coup against Keir Starmer after Labour got whacked in the Hartlepool by-election. Um, and um, I don't think Ed Miliband will have a significant influence, tragically, in the next government. Who would have thought it, given what happened before 2015, we're just desperately praying for Ed Miliband to be the radical 
um, conscience of the Labour government. But, you know, he did go on a journey. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think the people around Keir Starmer are going to tolerate him um, for X number of years. So I just want to flag this up um, uh, in terms of where I see things happening, uh, where I see things going uh, with the Labour Party. Um, I mean, I, th- I suppose the issue is, you know, I, as I said, it's, it's so unlike 997. By the way, they're not even being like 997 because 997 Labour had flagship policies like a minimum wage to deal with poverty. And like, um, you know, uh, two years of keeping uh, Tory rules um, on spending, but then after that, amending them with some massive investment. And even before that, really important, before that, uh, you had economic growth. Um, and so they could use the economic growth uh, to fund public services. And that's what they did. Uh, so even at, after 1997, even as they kept Tory rules in place, because you had significant economic growth, they could use that to fund public services. But they're not going to have that now. I mean, at the moment, they keep saying, well, we'll just have loads of growth, which is like, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like when they're saying, what would we do different to Tories? We'll have growth. Someone, someone said it's a bit like saying about a football player, he's not doing well and criticising him going, well, I would just score more goals than them. I mean, how are you going to do that? Um, so I think the danger, you know, back in ninety seven, that was an unsustainable financial bubble, which went, but you still had at the time growth and living standards going up. And you don't have that now. So you have the NHS in a state of collapse, seven and a half million people trapped on waiting lists, the most ever. Um, you have the worst squeeze in living standards since records began. Um, you have obviously public services and infrastructure, literally falling falling to pieces, literally falling to pieces. Um, you've got the massive growth in insecurity. You've got an ever-growing housing crisis on three, on three fronts, mortgage, mortgages spiking, rents going up, um, and the lack of council housing. So, you know, um, well, I mean, we could go on. I mean, where do, you, where do you end with that? And if you're not going to raise revenue, then how are you going to fix these problems if you don't suddenly have a miraculous spurt of growth? You know? Anyway, lots to think about there. Um, I just thought it would be worth, uh, just worth talking about in terms of the, just the politics of it. Uh, we've got some questions on it, but I will come back to them. Let me bring in, hello, hi there, bring in uh, Phoebe Clay, who's co-director of the organisation Unchecked UK. Now, so they represent, um, as I said before, 70-plus uh, organisations uh, which are making the case for strong social environmental uh, rules. Uh, so you're an expert on on all things regulation related, I suppose. Hi, how are you doing? You've had a busy how day. How are you doing? Thank you. Yes, it's been mad and hot. <laughs> yeah, very, very hot. Um, okay, well, just, just to begin with, um, in terms of what, what's going on, what's go- I mean, you kind of think there'd be regulators in place whose job it is to check out what's happening with infrastructure. What hap- what's happened to these regulators? I mean, the regulators have had both a sort of, I mean, they've been eviscerated is is a point, right? Um, You know, staffing levels are at sort of historic lows. Um, You know, we know that uh, today there's about 1,400 building control staff. That sounds like a big number. It's a fraction um, of what it used to be. And there are councils out there. Trafford Council has two surveyors and it's on its staff at this point. These are the people who go out there and check buildings, basically. And that work is just not happening. It's really, um, you know, we are a bit complacent about the fact that these people are there. We assume that as a developed country, a rich country, you know, a country that really, you know, treasures rules and institutions, things are being taken taken care of. And I don't think that's the case anymore. We, our evidence suggests that there is a huge enforcement gap in the UK today. And, you know, we really do need to take this, uh, you know, rack kind of the latest, which is effectively the, the latest crisis of the enforcement gap uh, really seriously. Um, just in terms of rack, and everyone's now rack, which stands for, this is the aero like concrete. What, yes. what does rack stand for? I always forget off I the top of my head. <laughs> 
basically rack is just this this old concrete which is full of lots of holes. Let's just let's just yes. call it that. Yeah. That's the technical yeah. term for it. Yeah. Uh, so on Patreon, uh, on Patreon, Suabu Jala asks, knowing that rack only lasts thirty years, why didn't anyone highlight those in the nineties? Would have been a great time sorting this out since New Labour could have put the money in. Yeah, I suppose a lot of people are going like, what, what, why did this suddenly emerge? Given people must have known the time, the time limit. Yeah, I mean, this is not an unfamiliar situation, right? Grenfell Tower, you know, people knew this stuff, um, and it was only because some sort of brave primarily public um public servants sort of came out and sort of you know have 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 kind of flagged the problem um i think there's two issues um one is an issue that you know in the uk our discussion around health and safety has been you know of the poorest quality right i mean we've had you know really kind of if you will will peril kind of um uh media kind of frame around it which is you know health and safety inspectors are you know, party poopers, they're the enemies of enterprise. Um, and, you know, that's had impacts both very practically, but also in terms of the way that we conceive about these things. So often those people just don't have, you know, that kind of platform, you know, they're not taken seriously, they can be very easily dismissed, especially, you know, in a context where local authorities are under pressure, uh, where, you know, schools are really sort of competing against each other much more. They want to have the glossiest building in order to attract the families um, and to really sort of stand out in their communities. So I think as much as a sort of question of, you know, why weren't we taking these seriously, people will have been taking this quite seriously. It's the fact that, you know, we've been slightly sort of distracted by it. And, you know, we haven't actually been taking health and safety, you know, even the, the term evokes sort of something slightly onerous. And when in fact, it is, and safety, know, safety. Yeah. yes, exactly. It's the safety of our kids, right? When they go to school, making sure that the, way, the, the roof is not going to cave over their heads. I mean, that's pretty sensible, common sense stuff. There's nothing boring about it. I mean, deregulation what, what's been the role of deregulation in this and and what you know why, why did deregulate why was deregulation sort of pushed and and why 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 did it end up being such a disaster i mean deregulation is sort of part of a kind of conception of you know this is how we stimulate growth right it's sort of low tax privatization let's get sort of private kind of ethos into public services and let's get rid of those rules right and it's it's sort of part of part and package of this whole kind of idea of this is how we kind of stimulate innovation this is how we unleash entrepreneurship this is you know let's get out of the way and um mm -hmm. i guess you know for some years that was okay <laughs> you know perhaps there's always the need to stress test the need for new regulations there are the methodologies but I think in the past decade, it's almost sort of been given sort of the status of, um, you know, of a mantra. You know, it's civil servants are being instructed to sort of roll, you know, think very, very carefully before any regulation gets put in. You know, for every regulation you put in, you have to strip away three. There's been all sorts of kind of efforts within government to really sort of, you know, push back against the any sort of introduction of new rules. And, um, and, 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 you know, that's now starting to bite, right? So we are seeing sort of things sort of starting to fall apart because, you know, the people who are doing those roles are just not there. You know, local authorities have said, prioritize things like flashy buildings, you know, but the stuff that, you know, those kind of guys in the health and safety department do, perhaps less sexy, less important, you know, and obviously, um, you know, when the decisions around funding, you know, are tough, those are the first things to go. So what's the sort of regulations that we should be pushing for? What's the kind of, the, what sort of regime? Well, I mean, I think often the regulations are there. I mean, it's just the infrastructure around them, uh, first of all, you know, having the people on the ground, you know, the people, someone made a really good distinction today. You know, there's two modes for regulators. There's crisis mode, you know, when the alarm has been sort of, um, has been pressed and, you know, everyone's kind of in crisis mode and everyone's clamoring for more rules and more regulations. And then there is the kind of everyday, the kind of equivalent of the Bobby on the beat kind of regulators. You know, we need people who can just come along, make their checks. They need to be experts. They need to be respected. And, they, you know, they need to be people that are, you know, everywhere. You know, they need to be able to, we, we've got data that shows that, 
you know, it's not just schools are not being inspected, it's workplaces aren't being inspected to check that, you know, employers are paying the living, uh, the minimum wage. It's farmers and, um, you know, others on the ground, you know, not being inspected to ensure that they're treating animals in the way that, you know, they should be. So it's, it's very systemic. Um, and I think it is, rather than sort of really reach for the kind of let's have more rules, let's really kind of go for for gold. I think it's sort of that layer beneath, you know, how are we kind of, you know, how we, how is the system operating? Do we, are we actually kind of enabling the system to work? And are we actually enforcing, you know, which is what people ultimately want, you know, when things are going badly, we do want the, the right people to be punished. And yeah, it, it can't just be sort of, you know, the latest political sort of, you know, crisis it actually has to have impact on, on on the way that things are operating so so when you heard by the way that civil servants were pushing in terms of schools for 300 400 uh schools to be refurbished a year and then they got half that amount of money and then it, and then it got halved again by the then chancellor Rishi Sunak. what's your yeah. i mean what do you think would you how that could have happened i mean i guess it you know my, my sense is that ministers go into those meetings with a sort of sense of, you know, what can we not, can, what can we say no to? And that's money, but it's also rules, right? So, you know, we, we are here to stop you guys. And there's a sort of a growing culture, both in relation to civil servants, but more even, even more so um, around regulators. You know, they are sort of vested interests. You know, they, are inter- you know they, they will always want more from us. They will always put pressure on us. And to me, that's, you know, um, you know, recipe for a really poor kind of conversation. And ministers and regulators need to be able to be constructed, constructive. That requires regulators, yes, to be experts, to have money behind them, but also to have a level of independence and to be taken, you know, really seriously. So, yeah, I think um, you can sort of almost visualize that conversation, can't you, between a minister and, you know, uh, one of those inspectors sort of coming in and saying this is a real problem. I guess there's also political factors, you know, it is not sexy to go and out and announce, you know, a new sort of um, school inspection inspection regime, much more, much more kind of um, compelling to go and announce a sexy new building designed by, you know, big name architects. So, yes, I mean, I would never classify these things as boring and, and but but important because this is what happens. And, you know, I think taking it much more seriously off the back of this rat crisis is is, is hopefully the best outcome. And just finally, how do you feel? Do you think Labour? You, do you hear promising noises at all from Labour and opposition in terms of engaging with with what you're saying? Well, I, I, I'm hearing quite mixed messages. If I'm really honest, um, on the one hand, I think there's a sort of real recognition um, amongst uh, key people in the party that you know this thing needs to be taken care of. Um, you know, they are hearing it in in their surgeries. Um, you know, there's obviously a sort of strong sense that these rules matters from a sort of more ideological perspective but again um you know that that narrative around less rules promote growth i mean it has been kind of you know drummed into um the minds of not just uh politicians but also the media and i think there's, there's a real tension there between this sort of labor agenda which is pro-business pro-growth and the idea that if we sort of step up on uh, on regulations we're going to get clobbered um, I think that's a great shame. All our analysis, we do a lot of surveying, we do a lot of focus grouping. Others do, Lord Ashcroft on, you know, conservative peer does his own analysis, finds that people want regulations. There is no, there is absolutely no public, public mandate for that agenda around less rules is better for us and better for our, our economy. People want protections. There is very strong support for environmental protections. There's strong support for labor market protections. And indeed, there's very strong uh, support for health and safety regulations. So I guess my, my plea to those sort of thinking about the next uh, labor manifesto is really, really take this on <laughs> because, you know, the public's on your side. And, you know, I think you can take the fight to the right leaning media if that's the case. Mm. Phoebe, I know you've got a very busy day, and it's also very sunny. I'm sure lots of people would like to get some more sun. I certainly do. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to let you go. But honestly, that was brilliant. Really, really appreciate you on thank your busy you. media round day. So thank you for joining us, and take care. Really, really great. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Great stuff. Yeah, um, it is very sunny. Um, and I'm actually really hot now, so I'm going to go. Um, Tad Cantwell before said, shouldn't the body determine if the payment is valid, not be prioritised, have quotas to meet? I think that was talking about social security. I think you're being flip. I think you're. I think you're being satirical there, Tad. 
Um, you probably don't support privatization of social security. Um, I now I feel bad because I think in context that I would know more what you're talking about, and I'm, I I didn't answer it in time. So that's my fault. I'm an idiot, as per usual. Uh, David Brasso, Margaret would be proud of Keir's Labour. I presume we're talking about Margaret Thatcher. Uh, thank you for speaking your poem. Well, she did say that New Labour was her finest achievement. And by that, she meant that her she forced the opposition to accept the fundamentals of what she did. And Keir Starmer's Labour is going to keep the fundamentals of what Thatcherism did. Thatcherism will remain. It's kind of annoying that because it's sort of dragged on a bit, hasn't it? And left this country just basically on its knees, guys, if I'm honest. It's just a country going out of the plug hole. <laughs> So I'd, I'd have liked to have got rid of it myself on balance. But we are buggered. Well, anyway, on that cheerful note, um, I do, I'm do. i sorry to say about before the stuff about Labour, and I'm, I, it is my job to try and keep everyone informed as best I can. So I'll keep doing that. Um, and I will write about it more, I'm sure. Anyway, um, we had a great video with Zach Polanski, who is the deputy leader of the Green Party of England and Wales. Do you check that out. Uh, we got lots of other... That was because people in Patreon asked me to do it. Um, oh, Tad Camwell, sorry. Says, forgot to put a knot in the super chat. Hold on. Um, yeah, I think he may be suggesting that that's what they're planning to do, privatise it. Sorry. Sorry, Tad. Sorry. Makes sense now. Um, yes, hello. Um, yeah, anyway. So, um, opti- yeah, someone says, optimism, please. No doomism. Oh, yeah, actually, Kate, sorry, I was trying to do optimism. I'm leaving an optimism. No. One of the main reasons it's not like 1987, despite the fact, you know, it's partly the country's a massive burning inferno, is A, we have a, a resurgent labor movement that was not true in the 90s. So the labor movement's back, baby. It's flexing its muscles, it's organizing unprecedented strikes. And whatever happens, even though I think it will be watered down, they will have more room for maneuver under a labor government. I do think that's true. And I think that's important. So I think we'll have an even more resurgent labor movement. Um, and I think as Keir Starmer's Labour does terrible things, I think the Labour movement comes into its own. So that's one element. The other is you do have a far more politicised, I would say younger generations, like millennials and Generation Z. Um, and I think uh, they've been politicised, lots of reasons, partly their own lived experience, the housing crisis, job insecurity, falling living standards, the destruction of a public realm they disproportionately depend on. Uh, but also um, social values. I mean, a lot of, you know, move, things like climate justice to Black Lives Matter. You know, I think they've been, you know, LGBTQ rights. They're far more progressive. Um, and I think those, all of that combined means you'll get a lot, you know, basically the expectations will be raised because the concerns have been kicked out, but quickly disappointed by the failure of Labour to actually fix the country's problems. That's what gives me hope. And I think that's a lot to hope for. I think, I, I sometimes get these Blair eyes going... I mean, you you just really just love living in a Tory government because then you get to complain all the time. Um, so I should first of all say I hate living under a conservative government. Don't like it at all. Never have, never will. Um, I mean, you know, the pathetic thing about me is, as people have noticed, that I'm, you know, often too Labour for my own good. Um, I've, I've only ever voted for the Labour Party. Voted for the Labour Party under every single leader of the Labour Party from Tony Blair onwards. So, you know, that doesn't really work as a critique. Um, but actually, the, the reason I feel, you know, I mean, because I also think when people say, people go like, oh, your business model depends on this. It's like, are you kidding me? You, you think I'm seeing myself as an entrepreneur? I'm just saying what I think. That's my job. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a political commentator. I write books, I write articles, I go on TV and I do videos of me saying what I think. That's all I'm doing. I'm not pretending to think anything. I'm just saying what I think. Anyway, the point I was going to make is... Um, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to all the uncritical cheerleaders of Keir Starmer because at the moment they're just benefiting from the fact everyone hates the Conservatives, aren't they? Um, and they want the Conservatives out. So there's a kind of rally around the opposition effects that they're benefiting from. What are they all going to say when Labour's in power doing terrible things? Are they just going to still what? Like Pravda, like some sort of North Korean unpaid news agency, going to be going, what Keir Starmer's doing is great in part, you know, we, we, we support him keeping benefits low and not raising taxes on the rich, not spending money on all these problems. Are, are they seriously going to keep saying that? I'd be interested to find out, actually, because I don't think there's going to be any big appetite for that sort of nonsense. Um, 
So, but I, what I do think is, you know, one of the reasons I do look forward for a Labour government is I do think that's when the left comes into its own. Because our critique of Keir Starmer, at the moment, a lot of people do go, oh, Owen, why don't you talk about the Tories? I always talk about the Tories. This video focuses on the Tories. Almost all the videos I do focus on the Tories. Um, but at the moment, you get that kind of defensiveness, like, well, he's the only way out of this mess. He's the, you know, rally around the captain um, until we get out of the storm. That's what people are like. But I think the left will get its proper hearing when you get a Labour government that raises expectations by getting rid of the Conservatives and then doesn't solve the country's problems. And that's when the Labour movement come into its own. That's when people under the age of, I mean, we're getting to the point of under 45 now, aren't we? Under 50. Um, people whose lives often quite hard and insecure. That's when I think they mobilise. And I think that's when leftist voices, you know, because at the moment, a lot of people like, you have this illusion by going, they say, but actually, Owen, maybe Keir Starmer would be more radical in office than he's suggesting. No, he won't. He'll be less radical. New, it'll be like New Labour. Just goes, it'll go further, further to the right in government. That's when we come into his own, into our own. So actually, I'm very optimistic. I think the left will have its heyday under a Labour government. What it then does—that's the tricky bit. How does it achieve any power? I get that, but I think the left will become. You know, I think people look at. Their hope that Corbynism was just a nice aberration which just got blown away forever. Not true. It, it emerged for material reasons, material circumstances. And I think for the same growing structural problems in British society, you will see the resurgence of a left movement um, under a crap Labour government. That's what I think will happen. So I'm full of optimism. People say without PR we're doomed. I agree. I want PR so we don't have to be have this ridiculous specs of being trapped in the Labour Party. Um, you know, I prefer if they pissed off and joined the Lib Dems and, you know, various conservatives in a kind of, you know, change UK formation and then just keep the Labour Party name. Uh, but whatever, you know, ludicrous. Why? Why? It doesn't make any sense for people like me to be supporting the same party as Peter Mandelson, does it? Doesn't really make any sense. So obviously PR would allow that to fracture. The problem is there was absolutely no chance of Keir Starmer's team voluntarily agreeing to that for that reason. They know, they're like, we defeat the left within the Labour Party. You think we're going to grant an electoral system that forces us into coalition with them forever? So um, if there was a minority government, you know, there was a chance of that being imposed upon them. But look, uh, it's going to be a rocky few years. I think that's one thing we should all be convinced of. Uh, but I am optimistic. I do think the left... Um, oh, so I just put hooray on just to make myself, just to make myself feel better. Um, I do think the left has a lot to be... Um, optimistic about in terms of the coming months and years. We're not going anywhere. Well, we are going somewhere, just to be clear. Right, I am going to go and get some sun now because it is... Uh, we've only got about an hour and a half left till sunset. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching. Press like and subscribe. Please support us on patreon.com forward slash 84 We've got lots of interviews. V trying to do videos pretty much every day. Sometimes two. <laughs> uh, I am exhausted. Um, anyway, we'll keep doing all that. Oh, yeah. And we're preparing our Conservative Party conference video in particular, Labour Party conference video. So if you want to support us for that, obviously, that's going to be our biggie. Um, Conservative Party conference video is always a special treat for people. Always very proud of what we do. And I think this year I'm going to have particular fun. Um, but I will get, try and get ideas for how we approach it. So I'm interested to hear what you all think. All right. OK. Lots of love, everyone. Enjoy the sun if you can. And I look forward to seeing you all very soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.